The views expressed in this program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of 94.9 CHRW. And so I want to do only what is right for my people. That is to, to protect them from communism. I am sure you understand that. Yes, but Esposito and his rebels are not communists. They are communists! Well, I think I know a little bit about politics. If I give a better life to my people, I have to exterminate a few troublemakers. That's the price we pay. I gotta be going. It's late for me. It has been a real pleasure to have this little chat with you. London. It is Thursday, October 2nd, 2008. I'm Bob Metz, and this is Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM, where we will be with you from now until noon. No, no, not right wing, you know that. Just right. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be and welcome to the show today where the theme of the whole show is going to be about this strong Canadian election fever we have. Or do we? I think the answer is not, <laughs> judging from some of the things I've seen. We'll be talking about taxes, the economy, the future, the leadership debates that started last night. Get, get into that a little later in the show. Talking about some old issues, new issues that have come into this election and uh, maybe start with political apathy and what's really going on out there. I am joined in the studio today by two guests who have been on the show before, way back in April, and that is David Aldred and Arthur Mayor, the chair and vice chair of the Forest City Institute. Is that correct? That's correct, yes. Uh, yes. Well, welcome, Bob. Welcome to the show. Give, just give us a real quick up, you know, definition of what the Forest City Institute is, just so... Um, sure, we're a... Some idea. Uh, we're a nonprofit uh, organization that mm -hmm. uh, uh, has a mission to explore issues of uh, civic governance and uh, try to communicate uh, those issues as well as promote uh, solutions, free market solutions to those problems. And um, when we were, when you were last on the show, we were talking mostly about civic issues. That's now, right. Now today, the the theme is going to be on the federal. Now the reason you're here today is because, uh, well, first of all, there was an all candidates debate this past Tuesday evening. Um, held at the convention center uh, for the riding of Elgin, Middlesex, London, and 20 people showed up. Meanwhile, there was another all-candidates debate held this past Tuesday evening as well, held right here at the University of Western Ontario, just a couple of buildings over from where we are here, in the Spencer Engineering Building, and uh, you know, and all of 11 people turned up, including uh, the candidates, and not including, unfortunately, incumbent candidate Glenn Pearson, who called at the last minute saying he wouldn't be attending the meeting. Now that was a meeting that was put on by the Forest City Institute and uh, of course the rest of the candidates showed up, conservative Paul Van Meerbergen, New Democrat Steve Holmes, who was a guest on this show before though, believe it or not, and uh, for the Greens, Mary Ann Hodge. Now um, you guys invited me to be one of the moderators and I got to ask these folks questions. I'd never, I've spoken about Paul Van Meerbergen, Meerbergen a lot on the show, never met him before, so it was the first time I got a chance to meet them. And uh, we heard a lot from the candidates, so I thought we'd start there, uh, sort of work from the local to uh, the national scene. Does that sound good with you guys? Oh, certainly. Now, uh, just to get an idea of what uh, 
what the flavor is out there of the of the whole election. There seems to be a lot of apathy out there. And, of course, that was one of the first questions I asked of the candidates that showed up, and um, which was amazing because they went through a complete two-hour debate, even though there were only 11 people there. And it started getting real interesting near the end there, where they started, mm -hmm. uh, you know, sort of going free-for-all. <laughs> and uh, very interesting looking at the contrast. So it, we think we should know a little bit about that. First question I asked them was uh, about the seeming apathy that Canadians are expressing towards the Canadian election. There's certainly a marked difference between uh, how even Canadians feel about their own election versus how they feel about the American election. Uh, being run at the same time, and I found an alarming number of Canadians who, that I talked to are, who seem to be uh, less interested in our debate than in the American debate. And um, I mentioned this to the three candidates, and I asked them what they um, what they thought. And basically, here's their three answers, and I'll get your what your feedback on or thoughts on that were. Um, now, of course, Liberal Glenn Pearson was not there. I'll deal with his opinions later because I am aware of them. So uh, we'll talk about that a little later on. But for the Green Party, Marianne Hodge, uh, uh, she basically spoke about, you know, the election being a $300, a $300 million waste of money kind of thing called too early. And she sort of shied away more from apathy and said, you know, you can go for the protest vote, which I think is perhaps what she sees her party is getting. Uh, Steve Holmes for the, uh, for the NDP referred to the American media style. He said American style politics is creeping into our politics. And, uh, but then uh, offered an interesting observation by suggesting that it's not apathy. I thought this was interesting, but competition that draws Canadians to American politics. He thinks from a competitive point of view, it's more interesting to watch. And I thought, well, maybe you can't argue with that. I don't know. And of course, Paul Van Meerbergen did not really agree um, that there was no debate in Canada and took the opportunity to contrast his Conservative Party's low taxes uh, against the Liberal spend, spend, spend approach to government. Now, that's did I sum that up pretty fair in terms of what the three candidates said, according to your memories? <laughs> yes, that sounds uh, pretty close. Yeah, that sounds uh, quite good there, Bob. Um, in one sense, I almost have to agree with Steve Holmes on this, this mm -hmm. thing. Um, there is a lot of competition for our attention. And it's not just, you know, American politics, but, you know, media, home, family, stuff like that. Mm -hmm. um, but I also would think that maybe one of the reasons for the apathy is just that what's being said by the politicians doesn't particularly resonate with the, with the people. That's something I was thinking about after the debate as well. Um, in a sense, you almost have to admire the NDP with her, you know, kitchen table versus board table narrative. Um, so I think really think the difficulty for most of the parties is they're mm -hmm. not really tying what they're talking about, you know, to the kitchen table. Uh, some of it is just concepts that are a little difficult or esoteric. You know, Paul Van Meerbergen talks about low taxes. Um, I have uh, education economics, so I understand things like macroeconomics, tax efficiency, things like that. But it's not something you can explain in a 30-second soundbite. You know, how does that directly affect you at the kitchen table? And you think that's hard for the average guy to understand? I would have thought that would be almost the easiest one. I can understand when I've got more money in my pocket. Um, how is that difficult to understand? Well, it's not so much that it's difficult to understand, but um, the way it's presented, perhaps, and also the competing narratives, um, especially the progressive narratives, really deal with uh, much stronger human emotions of greed and envy. 
I mean, the whole thing about we're going to tax the boardroom where we're going to take you know, millions of dollars from the rich, greedy corporations and oh, give yeah. them to somebody else. So that sort of thing, you know, that resonates to certain segments of the population, certainly. But it also probably sets up a little bit of a uh, little bit of uh, internal dissonance because, you know, let's say you're a, a worker at a factory, and on the one hand it sounds great, you know, well, yeah, we're going to take the money from the greedy bosses and, and give it to you, and then you start thinking, well, wait a second, I work for these people. You know, if if they're taking their money, what's going to happen to my job? And so then they end up with this internal conflict. You know, what's being said doesn't really track with what, what they know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so that sort of thing just basically disconnects them from, you know, like I said, the, the whole kitchen table uh, narrative idea. Well, yeah. I would have to say that uh, the idea of corporate tax cuts that have been, uh, or increasing corporate taxes that have been floating around this election, I don't think that... Um, that's really beyond most people. I mean, people have various different understandings of economics, certainly. Well, we'll certainly but, be talking uh, about that particular issue mm-hmm. more in depth in, later in the but show. I but I think most people probably, most people in the electorate uh, probably already have an idea of where what they think uh, about corporate tax breaks or corporate tax increases. I don't think that's really going to change too many people's minds. I think uh, actually part of the reason for the apathy is that people are pretty settled, as a matter of fact. Uh, I think one of Harper's, I'm guessing that one of Harper's strategies is actually to minimize issues in this election. Mm -hmm. I think that's uh, actually uh, a very good strategy. Uh, Nothing's really been able to stick in terms of an an issue that either characterizes or dominates the debate in this election. Uh, That works to Harper's advantage because it makes it appear that uh, everything is going all right and in fact i mean there's a strong argument you could say that harper is doing just that that uh, everything's being managed well i want to concentrate on the leaders a little more later Mm -hmm. in the show i was thinking more of this local meeting now Mm -hmm. did you uh uh, in terms of these answers on apathy which you already said you said maybe people are too uh still too comfortable you think still too too well not really not comfortable it's um it's not necessarily a matter of comfort. I think it may be just a matter of resignation to some degree as well. Uh, I think you know people have been through a lot of elections. There's nothing really pressing this issue like uh, or this election like a free trade debate or a healthcare debate, or even the carbon tax debate really hasn't taken hold because the liberals well, themselves have wanted to minimize that. Well, you know, you might you might not call them pressing issues. I would think if not pressing, they certainly define differences yeah, between but the parties. I, I think there sure. might be a, an attitude <laughs> among a lot of people that it really is not going to make right. a lot of difference. That perhaps with economic uh, scenarios being a little bit unstable right now, that people just uh, are looking for a bit of stability, mm-hmm. not going to rock the boat too much. Um, so that actually works, I think, to the conservatives' advantage right. as well. Yeah, yeah. Actually, uh, oh. sorry oh. to interrupt, but uh, I just saw something as David was talking about minimizing issues. Um, in a way, it reminds me, a few years ago, um, many of the hockey teams adopted an extremely defensive strategy, and the game became very very dull and boring to watch because everyone <laughs> was making these zone traps in the end zone, and nobody could you know, carry an offensive, carry a play. And I almost think that you know, what David's saying is true. The, the political parties, all of them, really want to have this, this zone trap. They don't want to say anything controversial. They don't want to get into... Issues like foreign policy, health care, or anything that's that's controversial because it might rock the boat. It might create some sort of unex- 
And the, the most dangerous thing for them is some sort of unexpected response among the electorate. Um, you know, I, I'm not sure that I share that opinion on that. I, I think the reason they won't talk about foreign policy and health care, first of all, it's not even a federal concern, although a lot of people think it is. It's purely provincial. All the federal government can do is transfer funds and, and bribe the provinces with uh, goodies or not goodies, you know, incentives, no incentives. Well, that's entirely uh, true, but yeah. the, one of the narratives of the NDP in particular is, you know, we're going to fix health care. Right. Even though it's their, the it's not even their jurisdiction, exactly. and, and uh, well, that tells you something too. You know, it's interesting. Uh, one of the other questions I asked, uh, since they were all local representatives, I said, um, "You always hear." And this was a big question last night, by the way, at the All Candidates debate in uh, London Fanshawe, and all of them fell over themselves to answer, not the way our candidates answered on Tuesday night. That's for sure. Um, and the question was that since each person's running for a, a larger federal party, each with its own ideology. You know, you always hear from the local candidate saying, well, I'm going to do what my constituents want. I'm going to do what the voters want. And I'm not going to follow that party line. And so I asked the candidates there whether that would describe them accurately or, you know, were there any big issues that they differ from uh, their own party line. Very interesting. I thought the responses, NDP Steve Holmes assured us that the NDP is in line with what constituents want. So he kind of avoided the question entirely and uh, that they must help struggling people survive, you know, and that's basically their mandate, and, and I guess he's saying that's what people are looking for in a government, so no difference for him. Now, Mary Ann Hodge for the Green Party, I thought, gave, gave a very concise answer on this one. It was, uh, she said the electorate, quote, has an expectation that you represent your party, right? So you're running for the Green Party, you're running for the Conservative Party. If you're not behaving green or conservative or whatever it is you represent, um, she says, well, what are you voting for, you know, like, and what else can you vote for? And I thought that was a, the most direct answer I think she gave for the whole night. And then uh, conservative Paul Van Meerbergen gave kind of a hybrid response. I felt it very sincere and, and like he was kind of struggling with it. Not struggling, but, you know, mm -hmm. giving it a serious consideration. And he su kind of suggested that when you run for a political party, you're, you know, you, you work within those certain parameters of what the party is. And if something serious comes up, you couldn't really think of anything off the hand, but, you know, then you might be faced with a situation where um, your constituents want something different and you might go against your party. Now, interestingly, at the uh, other all-candidates debate that I saw on cable last night, every single candidate said they would do what their constituents want. And I'll tell you the problem that makes for me. I don't know what I'm voting for then. Because <laughs> then I don't need to talk to my candidates. I need to talk to my constituents. Mm -hmm. And I've got to run polls all day and find out what Bill next door thinks and, and George next door to him. And it doesn't matter what any one of them thinks. I've got to do the numbers. I've got to figure out, you know, it, it just, uh, it's politics without principles as I look at it. So I don't know. Is, is, was that your reaction? Well, or I, did would, you? I would think that the, the reaction of the politicians at the London Fanshawe debate uh, is, is, is just is populism, really, mostly. Um, uh, I think most of the <laughs> most electors actually do expect, I think Marianne's right, um, Marianne Hodge was right, that uh, most electors actually do expect that their representatives will follow along party lines for the most part, because that's actually how it's been working for a long, long time. Uh, we have, uh, in the Canadian system, of course, we have all these confidence motions. Uh, uh, representatives are actually whipped mm -hmm. into voting. Uh, so there isn't, I, I mean, the, the pattern is, is evident to anybody who, who even pays remote attention to Parliament that uh, the candidates are going to act for the party first and foremost, and that if there's a little leeway to act for the constituents, 
they may be able to do so. I don't think uh, I don't think voters really have too much expectation that their representative will be a maverick, for example. Uh, mm-hmm. And perhaps actually that's fair enough. Uh, like you like you said, if I'm going to vote for a Green Party or a Conservative or NDP or Liberal. Uh, I use the party platforms as an indication of where the representative stands. Listen, we've got to take a quick break for a smile here. We're going to be back in a couple minutes. We'll continue this conversation on the other side, and you're going to hear a few uh, humorous comments here about uh, both the Canadian Army and I guess what you might call uh, labor and women's issues, which seem to be issues not discussed too much but brought up by certain people. We'll be back in two minutes, and we'll continue discussion on the other side. Canada's Army's pathetic, huh? We shoot one guy, there's an inquiry. <laughs> exactly. I'm asking him, well, why'd you shoot him? Huh? Why'd you shoot him? Sitting there thinking, maybe it had something to do with that M16 you put in his hand, eh? You bonehead, huh? Next time you don't want us to kill somebody overseas, send us over there with a fruit basket or something. Oh, <laughs> well, look, here come the Canadians. Hey, all right. Here's an apple for you, villager. (laughs) Say, who wants Smarties? I'm back. Have you heard the little fair CD? I'm back. Yeah. I was gone. Okay, what about the Lilith Fair CD? Isn't it amazing? I mean, women celebrating women. It's like completely empowering. Like, totally. Please get me a cup of tea. I don't think so. Excuse me? No tea. What, are we out? No. Then what? I don't get tea, Sydney. No tea. Uh, what about coffee? No coffee. No juice, no milk. Not anymore. Might I ask why, Claudia? It's a form of gender enslavement. I mean, you're only asking me to do this because I'm a woman. No, I'm asking you because I'm the woman you work for and you're my assistant. See? My point exactly. Subservience. That's taken, of course, from the, the TV show Relic Hunter. I call that clip Claudia Shrugged, <laughs> for, for those Ayn Rand fans out there. Uh, you know, women's issues comes up repeatedly from most of the left-wing parties. You hear it, and you hear it locally, and it's buried in with all the green propaganda and everything. And it almost seems to me just to be an issue of a century or two ago. And... I mean, that clip almost illustrates that you have a female employer (laughs) hiring a female. Women have been, quote, equal in the marketplace, and yet you still hear that issue discussed, you know, a lot. I know Glenn Pearson said he was motivated by women's issues to get into politics. He made a big thing of that. And, of course, on the other side, we heard those comments about uh, the Canadian Army, and I know, Arthur, you've been on the show as a guest on your own as a sergeant having been just returned from uh, Afghanistan the week before, a show we did about a year ago. So I think maybe you have some comments on uh, the situation in Afghanistan. did come up a little bit in the in the debate last night, but not, I don't think, I'm not even sure if an election is the proper, pl- you know, time or place to discuss whether you should be in a war. Maybe that's a, an issue in itself. What, what were your basic reactions? Well, that's 
Kim Campbell kind of famously said an election is not the time to discuss issues. And in one way, I think it's it's almost true. I mean, you're trying to condense very complex and very um, difficult issues into 30 or even 8-second sound bites. Uh, with regard to... Uh, with regard to Afghanistan, you know, the parliament has already spoken and already set the parameters of the mission and the end date and so on. Uh, essentially what the electorate now is going to decide is, is this correct or do they want a new government which might perhaps change this, uh, this mandate and these parameters. Um, further than that, I really can't, sp I can't speak on just because of mm -hmm. my position. So, so any other comments there, David? Well, I, I think, I don't think the Afghanistan... Uh, mission is really going to attract much attention in the election for the simple reason that um, again there there's there's uh, people are settled on it there is a there is a vocal uh, number of people who really want candidates to be out of Afghanistan there is a large number of people who seem to be rather content with the way things are going in either in either respect though um, whatever your viewpoint is, there's sort of a, uh, a complacency about what's going on that, uh, that it's, it's an election is not really going to change it. Uh, I mean, both the, both the major parties that have a chance of forming the next government have already basically said that they're going to be in Afghanistan for a while anyway, but hopefully we'll pull out at some point. Well, I, I think, you know, personally, I think the issue is too big to be discussed in an election context, and it really can't be affected mm -hmm. greatly by that. And uh, it's just beyond politics in a certain funny sort of way, even though politics is at the base of it. Now, before we get on to uh, the whole... Um, leadership debate, which we're in the middle of. The French one was last night, and I watched most of that, and I have to tell you, it was totally painful for me, <laughs> which I'll explain later. And, um, of course, the new, the new thing in the, in the debate now is the presence of Elizabeth May. And we'll be talking about that in a little while, whether, you know, really should she be there, or who should be in the leadership debate. But, of course, we see a greening of the whole electoral debate this time that we never saw in the past before. To a degree, we've got, you know, basically three parties for sure all on the green bandwagon, maybe, maybe the block as well. It's interesting, with our local candidates, I asked them if they believe that man-made CO2 caused global warming, and if so, on what evidence, and were they in favor of taxing CO2? And, of course, Green Marianne uh, Hodge, she's talked about the 1,200 scientist consensus they have, which... Uh, I felt a little embarrassed sitting there because I know better, you know, so, but being in this position of moderator, I kept, kept my tongue. Did you notice that? I did notice that. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> but, uh, you know, she just started talking about we'll have less cancer, less asthma due to chemicals in the air. I wasn't talking about chemicals. I was talking about CO2, you know. And Which I noticed that uh, right. the NAP candidate made the same. Answer. Yes, they all do that, right? And she talks about the three-year recovery from Hurricane Katrina. And then uh, Steve Holmes, though, said, you know, he says there's more than CO2 causing global warming, but he really doesn't know. He says, I'm a bus driver, not a chemist, which was a pretty <laughs> honest statement, I thought. And um, he said, cause, no. He said, contribute, yes, basically, what he thought about CO2. But uh, I think, and he brought up this issue, I think it was him who brought up the issue about uh, getting oil from the center of the earth. Did you hear him mention yes, that? I, I, yes, I've heard, I've heard that theory as well. Before. Now, <laughs> I, you know where I think that came from, too? Um, I know they've discovered on some planets that don't have vegetation on them or didn't have, and they've got oil, hmm. right? So I think they're yeah. starting to think maybe oil is not just a byproduct of the, bio, the biosphere as such. It might be a much more natural part of the plant. I think Steve was actually <coughs> using this more in an, 
analogy. You mm-hmm. know, he was talking about, um, in terms of economics, Canada has a great deal of economic power by selling natural resources. And he was saying, well, these are not infinite natural resources, but even if they were, and then he, he used a sort right, of humorous yeah. example, if we could stick a straw to the center of the earth and just draw out an unlimited quantity of oil. You know, I think he was actually uh, talking about some theory that, that, that he had heard. Well, there, there is a theory of that, but I'm not sure if he was referring directly to that theory. He was just no, using he, that he, as an analogy. You're right. He did say carbon-based fuels are not renewable. That's, in fact, the comment I have that right beside. Now, uh, Paul Van Meerbergen, on the other hand, he, 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 he certainly um, admitted there was climate change, but he says global warming's not even certain. We might be going through cooling. He says the climate changes continually, referred to how we've observed the planet's warming. And he talked about how carbon dioxide was necessary to life, and he discussed water vapor, and and uh, said he's against the carbon ca- tax and all that stuff. And uh, you know, sounds like he's been listening to this show because, I mean, for me, he was the only one that had any common sense on the well, issue. Well, he in might that even room. Been listening to voters as well. And, um, <laughs> yeah, you would you would hope so, eh? But um, we're in the middle of the debate now. Uh, just want to we're going to take a break now because I've, I've got a rather. L- lengthier clip. This is from uh, the Crossroads television system where uh, I appear often, but this one uh, includes uh, a clip uh, including Paul McKeever, who's been a guest on on this show, um, leader of the Freedom Party of Ontario, not involved in this federal election. But this was aired three weeks ago today on the very day we found out that Elizabeth May was going to be included in the election uh, debate, in the leaders' debate. And uh, just the day before, I think, uh, Paul was going into the studio to discuss whether she should be. So it had already been resolved in the time between the booking and, and the appearance. So uh, there's another guest on the show, but it's uh, hosted by Christine Williams on, um, on her show on CTS Network, which airs every Tuesday, which, by the way, I'm going to be on that show live this Tuesday. Can't, it's at 2 p.m. I can't tell you what we'll be talking about because they don't let me know until we get there at the last minute. But we'll be uh, talking about that. And then on the other side of the commercials, uh, we're going to take a break for ads, too. When we come back, you'll be hearing a clip from last leadership debate. You'll be hearing Steve Harper in his opening comments and some of the promises he's made. And we'll discuss whether he actually followed through on them or not. So we get to take a break for a few minutes now, and we'll see you after this break. Take care. Now let's meet our Viewpoints guest to talk about our subject matters today. Paul McKeever is leader of the Freedom Party of Ontario, and Al Kerouac is publisher for the Halton Herald. I called it a green shift. Elizabeth May, here it is. Greens to be in debates. That, that, that struck a chord with many people a few days ago when Elizabeth May was, according to many sources in the media, ganged up on. It went something like this in short. Stephen Harper didn't want to appear on televised debates with her, so Stefan Dion said, well, if Stephen Harper's not going to be on debating with her, well, then I'm not going to be part of that either. And Jacques Layton jumped on board, Parti Quebecois, and before you knew it, nobody wanted to be on TV, national debates, with Elizabeth May. She got mad, and so mad, in fact, that she threatened court action. Ever since, there's been a shift. Stephen Harper says he will have that debate with her, and all the other party members, leaders, have conceded as well. And the question that we're asking you, according to many newspaper reports, they're saying that you are public. You got angry about that. You, think, you thought that she should be given an equal voice in those debates. So why was everybody scared about it? For this one, I'm going to start with you, right. Paul. Do you think she should be part of these debates? I do. Uh, not necessarily in the way she got on. Uh, I mean, I think what happened there was 
the consortium used the excuse that, well, uh, some parties don't want them on and our hands are tied. And well, they didn't want them on either. The consortium did not want the Greens on. Uh, but uh, when, of, you know, when, when the leader said, well, you know what, she can be on, they were stuck. They had to let her on because their excuse had gone out the window. Of course, the only reason the party leaders had changed their mind was because she raised the, you know, the sexism card, and they didn't want to be smeared for this entire election, falsely and wrongly, by the way, uh, as being somehow sexist. So, you know, she uh, played her card. It worked. She's on. But we are still left with this a situation where mm -hmm. there is no principled approach to determining who's on the debate. I think the appropriate thing to do, given that every frequency, every channel is a ultimately a state property that's licensed to a private company. Uh, I think the, the appropriate way to do this is to say, look, these are potential prime ministers that we're looking at. If they don't have parties, or if they're not running a slate of candidates that's at least great enough to form a majority government, then we know they can't be a prime minister, so they shouldn't be there. So to my mind, the clear line is not, you know, are you registered or any of these other things, how, how well did you do in the last election or anything. The, the real key is can you put together an organization that is running 50% plus one of the seats in Canada? And that is no small feat. That's a hugely difficult thing to do. But it does demonstrate that you are potentially a prime minister and you deserve to be on that. That's of some concern of mine. But what was a bigger concern was I was led to believe when I was reading the CBC article that it was the media consortium that made the decision that she wasn't going to go on. And my immediate reaction was, why are we letting the media decide who gets to be present at these debates? And so I was a little concerned about that. Now, there's one question I have for the two of you and for you watching. As far as I know, the, she's making history here because televised debates are a natural part of our election process. The leaders get up there, they're challenged before the public. But... Have any of you out there, and you, ever heard of a party leader that really didn't have official party status, no members of parliament, going there before a televised debate and joining in? Or is Elizabeth May making history on this one? Well, official party status is usually related to having a certain number of members in the Member House. Of parliament, yes. And uh, I guess Joe Clark of the Progressive Conservative Party, they only had two seats yes. coming out of the 2003 election, and I believe they were allowed onto the, onto the debate floor nonetheless the next time out, even though two seats does not an official party make mm -hmm. within the parliamentary system in any, in any event. I mean, all these parties are registered, yes. but that's a separate matter from being official, uh, as that term yes, is meant. Yes, and in her case, she doesn't have members there. Uh, How do you, yeah, this is, it's a concern for you, Sarah? It's a concern, I mean, I, I, I'm on both sides of the issue, and, and it, you know, on the other side of the issue, we've got to deal with, she isn't an elected representative, uh, none of her uh, members are elected representatives, so if we open the door to her, then where, how do we st stop that floodgate? How do we stop that floodgate? You see, this is critical because, in my opinion, and I'd like to know how the two of you feel about this, in the debates that followed, plus it was mentioned in more than one article that Jack Layton, even his Facebook, it was flooded with, even his own supporters and some members within his own party saying, you know, how dare you? Why would you leave out Elizabeth May? Yet at the same time, there's that question of, she doesn't have any members of parliament, so is this a privilege that yeah. she has seen that nobody else has? Yes. I, I disagree entirely with the how many members of parliament you have, and the reason is this. Nobody has any members of parliament as soon as the parliament is dissolved. That's the whole point. Interesting. Interesting. Nobody is, Interesting nobody is a member right Interesting now. Interesting point. Yeah. And, and you know, if the point of the debate is to debate ideas, uh, then surely we don't say, well, because 
the ideas discussed four years ago, got these people into the legislature four years ago, they are still the ones who have the I mean, hopefully they're talking about different ideas now. Mm -hmm. So the ideas are old ideas that they had that got them in. But there's no reason to believe that their new ideas are worthy of, you know, a seat. And so I think we have to have a criterion that says past performance is no indicator of future performance. What matters is, have you brought enough members, have you brought enough candidates to the floor to be taken seriously as, remember, these are people, not just members of parties, mm -hmm. these are the people who would, if they had a majority of seats in the parliament, be appointed by the Governor General as Prime Minister of Canada. So this is really a pre-prime ministerial debate. And the only people I think you can truly exclude in a principled way are those who mathematically could not be Prime Minister. And believe it or not, uh, there will be very few parties that will manage to get 50 seats plus one. I've, I've run in several elections. I've been the, uh, the uh, leader of a political party in two of them. And in neither of them, because we are a small political party, uh, have we managed to get 50% plus one. And I would argue mm -hmm. that on that basis, we, did, we would not have uh, just been justly included in a leader's debate. 50% uh, plus one is difficult, and very few parties achieve it. I think it's a natural and perfect way of mm -hmm. drawing the line. Thank you, Mr. Martin. Mr. Stephen Harper, leader of the Conservative Party of Canada. Thank you. Good evening. Tonight, I want to talk to you about the direction I will take this country. For the past 13 years, party operatives and government insiders have done well. But too many ordinary Canadians are not enjoying the benefits of our economy. They're working harder and harder. Their taxes have gone up. Their savings have gone down. Worse yet, our senior citizens who've given so much have seen their real incomes fall. That's just not good enough. We need a government that will be on the side of the people who work hard, pay their taxes, and play by the rules. We have five priorities. We'll get past the scandals and establish accountability in Ottawa. We'll reduce taxes, starting with cutting the GST. We'll crack down on crime. We'll work with our provinces to establish a wait times guarantee for health care. And we'll provide choice and child care to Canadian parents. It's time. It's time for a new government that will work for ordinary people and their families. It's time for positive change for all Canadians. And that was not yet, oh no, no that wasn't yet Prime Minister Stephen Harper, was it? Last election, now that was recorded or broadcast rather on January 10th, 2006 during the last leadership debate, which did have opening comments from the leaders as last night's did not. Uh, but first I thought I'd get some thoughts from you on uh, should the leadership debate include uh, Elizabeth May? She was in there last night. A lot of people think she did okay. But um, given what you just heard uh, Paul McKeever say just before the break, and by the way, folks, 519-661-3600 is the number to call if you want to join the conversation. Uh, do you think she should be there? My well, answer is uh, no, no, she shouldn't. Oh, okay. we got some competition here. Okay, Arthur. Okay. Uh, basically, the reason I'm saying no, mm -hmm. you know, Elizabeth May, as has been pointed out, has no representatives, um, did not elect any members of parliament in the last parliament. You know, by historical analogy, Preston Manning never got a chance to be on a leader's debate until he elected a reform MP. Uh, we don't see, you know, the Communist Party, the Marxist-Leninist Party, the Christian Heritage Party, or Libertarian Party, or any other party being extended this privilege. And it's well, because we saw the Conservative Party extended that privilege under Joe Clark when they only had two seats, which still didn't um, 
give them a uh, an official status in Parliament, as, well, as did um, Mike Harris to the NDP provincially. Well, that's true, but I mean, even when Preston Manning finally got invited to a leaders' debate, I believe he only had one reform MP. So the point is not so much do you have a party, but have, do you have enough resonance with Canadians to actually elect to actually elect a member of Parliament? To get that fifty percent plus one. How would a new party ever get started under your system? So you're saying that anybody can run, even if they can't be uh, a party leader ever. And and I was just thinking, you know, what's the implications of the fifty percent plus one rule? Uh, Because we have three hundred and eight seats in the country, so you'd have to have fifty percent plus one of them to run under Paul's suggestion, which would mean, for example, that Dusep would not be able to run. Because and why should he be there? He can never possibly be the. the Prime Minister. Not possible. He's not running enough candidates. Impossible. Numerically impossible. Physically, it's, n- it's just not going to happen. Why is he in a leadership debate to be the leader of a country that he cannot even, uh, you know, metaphysically be? It, it's like, let's get, let's get the Martians down here and let them join. That's how I look at it. I can't agree with you on this one, Arthur. <laughs> well, okay. Uh, first of all, maybe I was a little unclear. 50, p- 50% plus one is at least in a writing, you've got enough resonance with no, voters to elect a member. No, we're talking about fielding candidates. Yeah. Now, the second thing, um, that establishes essentially a sort of a filter. Uh, let's let's use the wide open thing. Let's just, let's say, well, Elizabeth May can come in. Everybody can come in. Well, that's what we're doing now. So so now let's picture <laughs> last night's debate, and instead of you know a kitchen table or whatever it was with the five leaders around, we now have a boardroom table, and we have, I believe there's something like, 12 officially registered parties in Canada and all these people are trying to show each other down. So, you know, in a sense... Well, it's not about official registration. It's about fielding candidates. A lot of parties are officially registered who, who, ha- who do not field 50% plus one. Okay. But the point I'm trying to make is we have to establish some sort of a filter just to... Just yeah, and, and just you're, to but you're objecting to this one. I'm trying to find out why because I thought it was a pretty good one. Okay, because basically if you have the wherewithal, if you have the resonance to elect a member of parliament, if your ideas have enough resonance with the voters of Canada to elect you know, one or more members of parliament, then you have basically stepped, you know, stepped through the noise level and you know, created something worthwhile to say in the debate. Even if you have no chance of being um, the prime minister of the country, you should still be in the prime minister's debate. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. Now, obviously, we, you know, I don't think there's any rule that will ever, you know, weed out anomalous situations like Gilles Giuseppe. But well, this one does. Paul's suggestion does. He he yeah, only has 75 seats in the province of Ontario. If he wanted to be, and I think this is perfectly reasonable to me, if he wants to be a prime minister of this country, he should have you know half of the country representative to give him the possibility of getting a majority. Maybe so he needs more way than more than, than 75. <laughs> he needs he needs to extend the block into the rest of the country in order to to legitimately be in that debate. I don't think he should be there at all. Okay, but you know even under Paul's rule. You could have some sort of analogous situation. Let's say the Western separatist movement suddenly decides that they want to actually field a federal candidate. And theoretically, they probably could gain enough seats from the Manitoba border to British Columbia to potentially form a government. And yet, it would sort of be like the mirror image of Gilles Gilles de Sapp. Anyway. 
Well, that all depends if people, uh, you know, support them. How about you, well, David? Well, you know, do you the problem is that um, either way, you need some sort of test uh, to figure out whether somebody belongs, whether they can garner popular support, either to win seats or to become prime minister. For example, uh, uh, a realistic chance of becoming prime minister, well, that would probably at this point only qualify Stephen Harper, maybe, or perhaps Stefan Tiana. I know Jack Layton, though, also believes he could possibly form the next Well, now you're talking about the, the public's response, you know, but we're mm -hmm. talking about the mechanism through which That's they That's right, they but you still need some sort of test, either yeah, way. And, some sort and, of test or and, filter. And all their other parties have 50% plus one candidates running, so right. any one of them could, theoretically... Every, mm -hmm. Everybody could go green overnight if they wanted Certainly. to, even though they were never there And before. that's why I actually don't object to Elizabeth May uh, being there, because uh, as far as we know, she has, well, she... she see, I find her the most offensive person at the table, well, I, but uh, I still yeah, think she should be there. I think she <laughs> should be there. We don't have any way of knowing whether or not uh, she could win a seat in this ne next election, or her own seat for that matter. Um, I mean, there's polls, but who knows at this point. So there's no really good test... Uh, to say whether somebody belongs based on, you know, popular support. Uh, but it, it actually, my opinion is, um, another reason I think why not let her in is because of the nature of the debates right now. Uh, I think the debates that we have right now, um, th they don't allow for a real debate. I think the, the name debate is almost a mischaracterization. People are given such short periods of time to, yeah. to say anything on any particular but, issue. But that's really the format that the consortium chose. And actually, if, if I can just step in just for sure, a quick moment, absolutely. David. That's actually, this is actually where I was going next. Was the, uh, okay, so the, the original excuse was the, the consortium set the rules. <coughs> and then when Stephen Harper said he didn't want to uh, debate Elizabeth May, uh, then everyone else backed out. Well, first of all, whoever's hosting the debate gets to set the rules. Uh, when the Forest City Institute uh, established the format for our little all-candidates meeting on uh, Tuesday, we set the rules of the debate. The second thing is, since we set the rules of the debate, we could also, you know, within certain limitations, control things. So, for example, Mr. Pearson um, declined to attend, but we carried on regardless. And the reason, simply, is Mr. Pearson wants our votes, not the other way around. If he declines to attend, then, you know, he'll have to find some other way to, uh, to attract voters to and if he doesn't want to attend these debates. And it's the same all the way up and down the line. If Mr. Harper doesn't want to debate Elizabeth May, the consortium would say, well, fine, uh, if you change your mind, the seat's over there, but uh, you know, give us at least a half-hour notice before we go on the air kind of thing. Sure. As far as having a media consortium uh, decide who is going to attend or not, that seems to me uh, you know, no more arbitrary than any other proposals out there, really except for perhaps Paul McKeever's. Well, uh, well see, that's again what Paul took into account. He said, look at, you know, basically every, um, every radio station is renting their frequency from the government, mm -hmm. in essence, which isn't the way it should be. I know he doesn't support that, yeah. but given that's the way it is, uh, that's a perfectly clear rule to have. And it seems to me that, <laughs> I mean, how logical do you have to be? I mean, if you're not capable of being 
the prime minister, even if you got a hundred percent of the votes <laughs> for all the candidates you get. Why are you sitting? I at wonder that in table? the old days whether yeah. the Rhino Party was able to field candidates. <laughs> well, they had over. I remember they used to have well over fifty, sixty candidates okay. in any so they weren't election, too, but they weren't. They, weren't they wouldn't. The they wouldn't have made it. No, mm -hmm. but uh, it is very difficult, and I know that uh, even you know they think the small parties have trouble. The large parties have trouble too. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's right. Now. I don't know at this point, you know, I'm watching this whole election and it just feels like uh, the Liberals are complete, completely imploding. Harper looks like he's going to be walking away with it. I heard a, an open line caller on a radio talk show the other day who said he was voting for the Conservatives because, quote, they're the only adults in the room, end quote. And I, I just stopped cold. I thought that was hilarious. I thought it just captured my own... Um, sense of the whole election when, and, I, and I got that at the meeting we were there that night you know it was like uh, there's kids on the one side of the table who don't know anything about economics don't understand half of what they're talking about and then there's the adult at the other side cool calm collected knows what he's talking about but isn't exactly exciting the kids because yeah. you know and I also uh, you know took a big uh, look at their websites and if you look at the four websites I got to tell you uh, the Liberal Party and the Green Party their websites totally suck they're really bad um just plain white uh fragmented uh platforms uh, both of them you can't save their pages you know on whereas the uh the NDP and um and uh, the conservative Harper's Conservatives they've got the best websites they're playing up on leadership you'll see the leaders there both of them and i think in terms of just optics that um it's the conservatives and the NDP this election really and just uh, and i disagree <laughs> with policies of both but certainly more of the NDP but they're playing their cards right this time i yeah, think yeah. Do, that's do, the do difference between Stephen Harper and yeah. Paul Martin in the last election because uh Paul Martin was not able to uh, convey himself as an adult, uh, as you pointed out, whereas Stephen Harper's very good at that. I mean, it's always difficult a little bit for opposition parties because they have to uh, be mm. a little bit more vocal and grandstanding to try to uh, to get themselves uh, an increase in support. Um, so the the uh, incumbent governing party always has a bit of an advantage in that respect. However, the conservatives, uh, well, I should say Stephen Harper probably, uh, have been very good at maintaining that... Uh, that uh, optic of of appearing like good leaders, like yeah. adults I think, in charge. I think the other reason is uh, if you actually go down to their underlying philosophies, the the NDP, whether you agree with them or not, have a, a very strong and very integrated core philosophy. You know of how they plan to run the country, how they intend to do things. So everything meshes quite nicely. Yeah, I would call them a party of principle. And uh, the wrong the, principles, from my point of view, but still a party of principle. Yeah. Well, regardless, they're yeah. a party of principle, <laughs> and the and the Conservative Party of Canada is the same. They they stand for a core set of principles, and everything meshes quite neatly. Uh, the Liberals uh, traditionally were a brokerage party. They sort of offered a little bit here, a little bit there, a little bit there, and that's one of the reasons they were so successful for uh, for much of Canadian yeah, history. Is all they things could, to all people. Yeah, and yeah. they could essentially get enough small little coalitions of people to vote for them to get them into power. Uh, the Green Party, I don't think they're a brokerage party, but I do think that perhaps their principles are not entirely clear even to themselves, which is why they seem a little bit muddled. And uh, I would expect, you know, just basically some evolution, maybe uh, within the next two elections, you'll probably see a much better presentation by, you know, however the Green Party evolves, and it will seem much more coherent and much more principled and much more 
you know, even their website will be much more attractive simply well, because they've, they've got a much better handle on sure. what they want to do and what they want to be. Listen, we're going to take a quick break right now, and the next voice you're going to hear again is, this time it's Jack Layton from the last uh, 2006 leadership debate on his opening comments. And coming out of that, we're going to hear Dr. Walter Williams from an American perspective, because we'll turn to the economy a bit and how it, uh, how it relates to the election, uh, who brings up a fascinating question from the American point of view, even especially considering the financial crisis today. And uh, it certainly applies to Canada. It was one of the questions I wanted to ask at the meeting the other night, but didn't get around to. So we'll take a break here for about two minutes or so, and we'll be right back. And uh, we've got about six or seven minutes left to go. Thank you, Monsieur Duceppe. And Mr. Jack Layton, leader of the New Democratic Party of Canada. Good evening. In 14 days, we have a real opportunity to make a real change in politics and put working people first. I ask you to join me in saying that enough is enough with liberal arrogance and scandals and enough to the vote-buying promises of the Conservatives. There's a better choice, a third option, the NDP. We'll make politicians and Parliament accountable to you and we'll work day in and day out, not for the well-connected, but for working families. We'll put the public back in public health care. We'll ensure dignity and respect for seniors. And we'll make sure there's opportunities for young people, training and education they need. We'll make sure you get the services that you pay for with your hard-earned tax dollars. You can make this change a reality. In 14 days, we can change politics for the better and put working families first. Because people say, well, Williams, you've diagnosed many of our problems. Do you have any solutions? I'm here to tell you I'm short on solutions. But let me just give you one that I've worked on. And back in 19... You know, the big problem is that the founders to our nation, they wrote the world's most brilliant document for, for the protection of liberties. But there's a glaring omission. There is nothing in the Constitution of the United States that protects our economic liberties. That is, there are clear, unambiguous protections of our right to free speech, our right to religion, our right to peaceably assemble, but there's nothing in the Constitution of the United States that restrains the federal government in terms of how long they can force us to work to pay state and federal, state, and local taxes. And I think the uh, the same principle applies to Canada. I don't know whether I'd put it in, in the Constitution per se, but it's always been a, a question I've had in the back of my mind. I mean, Canadians pay, you know, you've heard upward of 50%, say, give or take, uh, in accumulated taxes and all uh, at every level, which I think is totally outra outrageous. It means we're slaves, literally, for half the year. The fact that we do it through a tax system instead of using whips and chains like they did in the Roman days <laughs> doesn't change much, I think, in terms of the effect. But uh, how, many, how high a rate of taxes is enough? I mean, this is all we're getting promised by four of the five parties, really. And, and here, look at this headline, NDP vows corporate tax hit. The NDP, I mean, to me, that's insanity. Like... Corporations <laughs> don't pay taxes; their customers well. do. I buy my I, I buy my clothes from corporations, my food, my car, my everything. So basically, they want everything to be twenty five percent higher if that were, say, the given rate. One uh, of the 
one of the shortcomings of debates is that you get uh, these snippets of really bad or faulty economics, uh, and there's no chance to really address the premises behind those economic misunderstandings. But as far as what what's a what's a what tax rate is too much? Well. Uh, I don't know that you can actually say that. I mean, of course, you can, you know, from a strictly uh, libertarian perspective, you can say zero taxes. But uh, in any case, uh, that's the nice thing about an election, though, is a bit of give and take. Uh, I think people, I mean, the NDP has never formed a government in Canada. Uh, well, they have on the provincial level, but well, never on the federal level. And the reason is because... You know, it's interesting. You looked at that question from the government's point of view. I'm looking at it from the individual's point of view. At what point in, like, you know, mm -hmm. Fraser Institute has this thing called Tax Freedom Day, okay, and really that's Human Freedom Day. At what point is my life my own and not my government's? Now, I think it should be all the time, mm -hmm. and that doesn't mean I don't believe in taxes. It just means I don't believe in income or property taxes because mm -hmm. those affect the person. Sa uh, sales taxes, consumption taxes, licenses, filing, registration, all those kind of things are perfectly legitimate ways of running governments, and that can get exorbitantly out of hand too, but that's, an, that's, a, that's a spending issue, not a taxing issue. Um, it just, it, to me, it's unconscionable that any party anywhere would be starting to advocate greater taxes. And the green tax, you know, you, you spoke with the libertarian position. You hear a lot of libertarians saying they like the green tax mm -hmm. versus uh, income tax. And uh, if you know if it were just that simple a thing, I'd I say. Have no idea why. <laughs> well, because it's. <laughs> well, I do actually. It's have because an idea they hate why. income taxes yeah, so yeah. much, and I do too. I do. Yep. Okay. And from but, an economic. But I don't want a tax based on a completely fairy tale story. Which always, I, the question for me is always, you know, if we if we ever had, uh, you know, if the if the earth started cooling down or people actually gave up the idea that carbon emissions were fault were at fault for uh, climate change, would the carbon tax ever be abolished? I'm sure it would never be abolished. Uh, it would be here to stay. So that would be one of my principal objections to it. Not to mention the fact that, you know, do we really trust politicians to actually uh, manage this tax so that it goes to where it says it is and that we'll get the corresponding income tax cuts? Uh, oh, you know, no, it's going it's to be a big mess. I'm trying not to laugh out loud. Yeah, that. That's how I feel whenever I hear that. I just, I watched the, these latest debates and I just despair at the outrageous childish mentality of, I hate to say, four of the parties. And I, I'm a strong critic of, of conservatives. Anyone who's listened to this show knows that, right? Mm -hmm. But I got to say, this election, they're the only adults in the room. And and <laughs> how about you, Arthur? You were going to say something there before we rudely interrupted you. We've got a couple minutes left here. Well, what I'm, what I'm thinking is men, most of the progressive parties, you know, Greens, Liberals, NDP, uh, the American Democrats, um, they've They've refined their approach very, very well. Um, they know that they only have a very short period of time to to uh, present their platform, you know, the 30-second to 8-second soundbite. Mm -hmm. So they've basically appealed to the most powerful of human emotions, greed and envy. You know, tax the rich, tax the corporations, take money away from the greedy bankers, and so on. You know, that's something that you can say, very short, you know, it resonates with people. And they don't, uh, you know, the the answers are much longer so it's difficult for people on the classical liberal side of the house to rebut that sort of thing effectively in you know the very short debate formats or the very short you know attack ad formats or the very short soundbite formats that uh, 
have become prevalent in uh, the in the media. And that actually works to the disadvantage of progressive parties, liberals, NDP, Green Party, Democrats, whatever, because these are largely academic issues. People may believe in uh, environmental crises, but they don't actually, for the most part, act as if they're in a crisis. Uh, so they, they're, they're academic issues, women's issues, uh, things like that. They're things that you know sound great in the academic and media world. Uh, and people may have uh, a belief in them, but they really do not act themselves as if it was something pressing for themselves. Oh, exactly. Uh, although, although people aren't educated in economics for the most part, I think they implicitly understand the concept of opportunity costs. So, you know, when you say we're going to tax carbon to save the environment or we're going to tax corporations to provide childcare for the working people, you know, in the back of their minds, people think, well, how much is this going to cost me? But the problem from the from the other side is that to try and explain how much it's going to cost you, the voter, you know, it takes much more than thirty seconds. Understood. And, and you know, speaking of thirty seconds, that's about all the time we got left in the show today. I want to thank both of you for joining us today. My own uh, conclusion about, um, I guess, uh, the whole election period is really I have to agree with Kim Campbell. It's not the time to discuss the deeper parts of the ideas. But what I think political parties do during this period is paint an image of themselves, uh, maybe even a caricature up to a point, you know. And that's what leadership debates, not debates, their platform, you know, <laughs> type of scrummages there. And that's all you can really ex expect. Those of you who are really interested in following elections and what they're really all about, you can't just do that for the six-week period of the election. You've got to be doing that full-time. That's the thought I'll leave you with this week. So we'll be wrapping it up now, and I hope you'll join us again next week as we continue our journey in the right direction. Until then, think right, act right, do right, and stay right. Take care. We'll see you next week. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be alright. Not easy being a parent, man. Really not easy. I mean, a uh, child doesn't come with an instruction, but my girlfriend wants to have kids now. We were in a public park the other day, and there's these kids walking around with a hand on the string. And she's like, oh, I want to have a kid. All right. Which one? All right. Which one?